CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to Hard Problems with Bram Cohen, brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode is sponsored by Nexo.io and Bitstamp.com. On today's show, BitTorrent inventor and Chia CEO Bram Cohen is talking about ransomware and computer security with American hacker Jeffrey Paul, also known as Sneak. This episode was recorded live and features questions from our Clubhouse audience. Our next live recording zooms in on music and music theory with Grammy-nominated composer and musical pioneer BT on Wednesday, June 3rd. If you'd like to sit in, you'll find an invitation to join Clubhouse in the show notes for this episode. But today, it's about ransomware. And now, here's Bram Cohen. There's this thing about computer security in general. I am not a computer security person, very intentionally so, mostly because at a high level, how it's handled just kind of makes me sick. That back in the day, meaning like 20 years ago, people just sort of took it for granted, like it was a law of nature that you couldn't possibly have a sandbox work right, like that it just couldn't be done. Oh, of course you have critical security bugs. That's something you can't possibly stop. There's no point in even trying. It was just like this gospel. And it just drove me mad. It was just ridiculous. And so many of the basic steps to even start getting there were just so stupid. A sandbox is when you have some untrusted piece of code that you're going to be writing and so you put limitations on what it can do. There is a sandbox of things that it is capable of doing, and you are limiting it to only doing those things. Like a watertight compartment. Yeah, kind of like in software, we kind of assume that almost everything that we're doing is like on a spaceship and we're, we have like some alien eggs that we're breeding in this like incubator on the spaceship. And we just assume that if the alien eggs in the incubator manage to escape from the incubator, they're going to turn into these like evil space aliens who are going to start injecting their eggs into us and killing us all. But the bounds on that incubator are called the sandbox. And this is just a fundamental thing in computer security. If you can't have sandboxes, you basically can't do anything. Kind of like when you go to a web page, you don't expect that web page to be able to read every file on your computer or to tie it back to encrypt every file on your computer and charge your ransom. And so your web browser has a sandbox in it to keep that code that comes from some random stranger on the internet from doing whatever it wants with your computer, even though it's running on your computer. Yeah. So there are basic processes for doing this. Like when I created BitTorrent in the first place, I wrote it all in Python and people acted like I was a freak for doing this, but I never had like a serious security problem, at least as far as Python's handling of strings was concerned. Just this like very basic meat and potatoes measure really, really kept things under control. The things that kept me up at night had to do with like file names. Like there's a suggested file name. And so it's like, okay, well, I guess when I'm saving file names, I should use the suggested file names. But what do these suggested file names mean? And I would ask people, hey guys, what are the security implications here? How can I parse a file, a suggested file name to actually understand what it's going to do on the local system and make it so someone can't like maliciously give me a file name that's going to like overwrite security critical files on my drive when I actually try to save a file with the suggested contents with that suggested name. And everyone's like, uh, yeah, it's completely system dependent and we have no idea. There's no documentation. Unix does something. Windows does something. There's no way to figure out what it does. And I think the situation hasn't improved very much to this day. And it's kind of horrible. You're not alone in thinking this sort of way. There are a number of people and organizations that are 
doing their best to improve the situation. Like, for example, I know on current versions of the macOS, like applications, at least the ones in the App Store, I don't know about the ones distributed out, are sandboxed by default. And like, even if they do stuff outside of where they're supposed to do stuff, it's still going to be in the sandbox. So there's definitely a number of smart people in our industry that are thinking about this kind of stuff. It's not totally off the radar. But again, as you mentioned, it's absolutely not evenly distributed. And any sort of sea change like this takes 20 years to get around, like into the commonly used tools across all of the libraries and get everybody on board. The situation is vastly better today than it was back in the day. The web is what really changed it because the web had to be sandboxed. There was no way around it. Like it was a disaster if everything wasn't sandboxed, especially once people started doing like banking and stuff on it. So today that's taken very seriously. The infrastructure it's built on is horrible. (laughs) You know, sandboxing JavaScript is problematic. Although it's ironic that we gave up on Java because no one could fix the security problems in it because Java was supposed to be super great for security was one of its talking points when it came out is it was going to take over the web because it was better for security. And this hack job, which was JavaScript, wound up being better for security than Java was. But it's taken for granted these days that browsers need to sandbox things properly. It's taken for granted that your phone needs to sandbox things properly. It's sort of kind of getting there that your desktop sandboxes things properly. Not really. Maybe they're sure trying. They're actually telling you when it wants crazy permissions now. And maybe those are enforced well enough that you can kind of rely on them for security reasons. At least people are trying. Apple's sort of leading the way here because as far as desktop OSs that will protect you against ransomware, like, for example, you know, you run some random program that you downloaded from the internet, which, as we know, is already not a good idea. But let's say you do this because that's a thing that people do on their desktop computers. It has read and write access to every single file that your user has read and write access, which is to say everything in your documents folder, everything in your home directory, your user directory, all this kind of stuff. On current versions of the macOS, specifically for this reason, if even an unsandbox app tries to read or write files outside of you know its own little sandbox directory, it's going to pop up a permissions dialog. Apple got some hassle for this because the first time you run programs, even just to read and write stuff in your documents folder, it's going to say, hey, do you want to allow this? Now, this is a really good thing, I think. Neither Linux nor Windows has adopted this yet, and it's a major impediment to just simple, unsophisticated ransomware. With mobile OSs, we have this sort of sandboxing in by design, and so it's much harder for ransomware to exist on mobile devices. But as far as top computing, and when I say that, I mean like the major normal desktop OSs, whether they're on you know fixed computer or laptop, with the exception of macOS, don't really have any protections against ransomware or things that can even forget about ransomware, just steal your files and upload them across the internet. Programs don't have an internet access permission on your computer unless you're running a program like Lulu or Little Snitch or NetLimiter that shows you like the hundreds of connections that these things are making. And by default, they can read any file that you can read on your computer. So the moment you double click it, it could be uploading all of your sensitive documents in your documents folder, some remote server in Windows, Linux, and with the exception of though, it wants to read documents in your documents folder on the Mac that just won't tell you that, you know, this thing is now uploading gigabytes silently. So I think we have a long way to go there in terms of making what a program is doing inside of its sandbox or when it attempts to leave the sandbox more visible to users. Yeah, ironically, the hard problem here, the limiting factor on it actually happening is a UX problem. This goes all the way back to Windows, I think it was 7, where Microsoft suddenly decided to try to take security somewhat seriously. And they did just a horrible, horrible job of it. Because what happened was every time something tried to do something even a little bit suspicious, it would ask the user, do you want to let this thing do this? And it just gave like hundreds of false positives everywhere, which of course leads to the users either just clicking, yeah, whatever, or just turning off all warnings completely, right? So there's this problem of how do you let the user know This application wants these kinds of permissions to do things or is trying to do this thing. Do you want to let it do it in a way that's simultaneously giving the user the control that they want so they can say no if the answer is no, while making it so that if they say yes, they're only giving the amount that they want and it's going to stop it from giving lots and lots of false positives afterwards. Like, it's really mobile OSs that have been leading the charge and getting this problem under control. Yeah, I think there's a fundamental sort of psychology and philosophical problem there, too, because anytime you 
can do something or not do something. You're asking the user to make a decision. And our entire industry, from like the acceptance of a licensing agreement when you sign up for an account to dialog boxes and modal interfaces in general, it's like we're asking the user to read more than, you know, five or six words and make a high-level decision hundreds of times an hour. And it's well known in UX circles that users just aren't going to read the copy in your dialog boxes. They're just going to smash the big default button, whether that means like, yeah, sure, don't encrypt anything. Or, yeah, sure, give this piece of sketchy software total control over my computer. We train users in a Pavlovian sense over and over and over again, hundreds of times an hour, to smash the big default button and say, yeah, sure, okay, do it. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, we see the rise of non-general purpose computing coming up. We're smashing the default button, no matter how many times you do it, is still not going to let you, the owner and operator of the device, run untrusted software on the device because people just hit the button and then their computer is no longer theirs, you know? Yeah, well, there's two things really messing this up. One of them is anti-patterns, right? There's this hilariously bad lawyering to this day where some of those like click-through license agreements have a checkbox that say, I certify that I've read and understand the whole license agreement, which is ludicrous, right? It's like, it's a hundred pages long and it requires a JD to be able to understand it. Like, that's ridiculous. Obviously, if you bring this up in court, having that text be there is just going to make it worth less rather than more, because obviously no one's actually going to have read it. So if merely said, well, I agree to it, maybe that would have more chance of holding up in court. And yet it has this ridiculous thing stated there. So there's lots and lots of things which are just going through the motions, who are intentionally training users to just say, yeah, whatever. But there also is kind of an attitudinal thing that a lot of software developers really aren't over to this day. Like it used to be, and to some extent still is, that when a user has trouble with a user interface, the software developer who made it goes, oh, well, the problem is that the users are stupid. They're just stupid. That's the whole issue. And that's ridiculous. Like, no, you do your job. <laughs> like this is supposed to be usable software. But there's always this tendency to go, oh, well, people are just smashing, okay, whatever on it. So people go, oh, well, the problem is the users are stupid. So I'm just going to make it scream even louder before they hit next on the thing. And it's like, well, that's just training them to ignore it even further. <laughs> that's like, that's doing the opposite of what you're nominally supposed to be doing. I think one of the solutions, I think Firefox may have done this first, was when the decision box, like for, for example, to accept an untrusted certificate or something like that, they actually made the confirmation button be a little countdown timer. So you couldn't just immediately smash it. You had to sit there and look at the, text of the dialogue. I don't know if that was actually effective or if it just annoyed people further. But to sort of tie this back, so, you know, this concept of hitting the default, accepting the default, just trying to get on with your day without reading the license agreement or reading the dialogue box, I think is probably one of the root causes of how ransomware ends up propagating. Because, you know, Windows or the Mac, when you download a program that contains malware that is going to do ransomware to your computer, you know, you double click on it, it's going to stop you. And it's going to say, hey, is this something you want to do? Like, the, ultimately, the reason that ransomware ends up on the computer with a few specific exceptions to like, you know, remote exploitation, which is relatively rare in the scheme of things is because the user said, yes, I want to run this program. So this is going to sound a little bit like victim blaming. But ultimately, you know, if your computer is not infected, and it becomes infected because of something you did, then that responsibility, maybe not like, fault, but that responsibility lies with the person who put that software on that computer. Now, because of this thing that you just discussed, you know, people are trained by, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different organizations to just smash the button and sit, hit yes, I accept, okay, go ahead, I got to do my job. We end up with this state of affairs where, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time you click that yes, go ahead, do it button, nothing bad happens. And then one time out of a thousand, you do it and every file on your computer is encrypted. And your boss is yelling at you, right? Yeah, well, a part of the issue is that the sandboxing has to be done really, really well. It has to be that whatever applications other than your browser you install in your machine, the normal case needs to be they can go about their business doing everything they need to do without you saying, yeah, whatever, on scary looking warnings. And even the users who are judicious, if even once there's some completely innocuous application that for some completely stupid reason needs a seemingly totally unreasonable level of security or access to your machine, and then it goes ahead and does its business innocuously, that will have trained them to do that, to be like, whatever. So 
it's very, very important that almost all applications can sit there in their sandbox and perform their duties as the user expects them to while still being within a sandbox or else security is just going to be turned off completely. Yeah, I think the other sort of pendulum end of that is developers deciding that whether or not they believe the user is being stupid or not, but the user input to one of these decision boxes is going to be predictable and therefore meaningless, like it's not real consent. And so therefore the developers will frequently just decide like, oh, this is something we're going to do because this needs to happen on the user's computer. A good example would be auto-updaters. Like for example, in Chrome, Signal Desktop does this for another good example. The password manager I use, Bitwarden, does this. And they'll just download new code and replace their own code. And the next time you launch it, it'll just run. It doesn't ask you if you want to do this, doesn't give you an opportunity to turn this off. It's just, we've decided because we know better about your security than you do that we're going to update the software so that you're as secure as possible. And this works great until it doesn't, as we saw with SolarWinds, because you're basically at that point giving control of whatever that software is to self-modify itself yeah, uh, that, to a remote party. Well, that's a really important example, that software does need to be able to self-modify. It does need to be able to auto-update. It's very important that whatever sandbox the computer is putting on things allows software to be able to auto-update itself without needing access to just arbitrary modifications of the file system on your computer. Yeah, I think the thing that this circles back to is that then, let's say you get code and it's good and valid and trusted and it's in its sandbox, but it's able to self-modify and download new code from the network based on the attestation of some remote developer, you know, if their keys are compromised, if their distribution server is compromised, whatever, you end up in this situation where that code that was formerly totally innocuous is now malicious code running in that same sandbox with that same access. This, I think, sort of underlines how much perhaps single point of failure sandboxing of code is. For example, my password manager, I have my the auto update patched out manually, but it has, even within its sandbox, it has all of my passwords. It accepts my master password to decrypt all of my passwords. If it were replaced with malicious software, which, you know, could upload all this password to some place on the internet decrypted, you know, even within its sandbox, programs can be dangerous. For example, you know, if you have very standard like word processor files in your documents folder and some app has within its sandbox has access to those specific files, but then it's updated with malicious software. Now that malicious software can read those files. So this is absolutely not an easy problem with any sort of easy clear-cut solution, I don't think. Yeah, well, one thing that still drives me mad <laughs> is applications should not be able to just read from and write to the cut and paste buffer, right? Like, this is something they should have to have permission to do. Like, if I don't hit Control-C, the application that's running should not be able to write to the paste buffer. If I don't hit Control-V, they shouldn't be able to read from the paste buffer. That just should not be a thing. We really, across the industry, have to start looking at the concept that most software that we run on a daily basis is sort of default malicious, needs to be strongly sandboxed. We started to do this with the web, although there's still a number of performance-related sort of attacks on things like that. And Apple and Android have famously done this on mobile sort of from the beginning, but across all of general-purpose computing, we need to be looking at the fact that whenever you run software, even if it was good before, it might be bad now and treat it accordingly. Yeah. On one level, the lack of attitude towards accepting that sandboxing is the answer and we need to take it seriously and in particular take the UX components of it seriously is part of why I don't like dealing with security. The other thing is when you actually are sandboxing, just the sheer tedium of the whole thing. It's like, oh man. Yeah, the only OS that I know that really does this sort of first class is called Cubes, and it's not a very good user experience. It's very clunky. It's like a research OS. It's very, very useful and great for the thing that it does, but it's not something that an average user is going to be able to mentally model or use as a daily driver. And that, I think, is going to have to change in the next 10 to 20 years. Otherwise, you know, these same attacks that we're seeing today, like, for example, ransomware. Ransomware is only possible as a result of a lack of application sandboxing or virtualization or security isolation from the rest of the system. And until that changes, this is going to continue. Payment systems or no payment systems. So let's uh, well, talk about the payment system for a second here before we yeah. continue any deeper into this conversation. So it seems to me that as someone is relatively uneducated about this topic, that ransomware is not necessarily a new thing. It goes back at least to the 90s. And Sneak, you and I were talking before the show 
And it sounds like, again, like we may be looking at pre-technology ransomware that goes back far kind of beyond that. So can you kind of talk about like what difference did it make when cryptocurrency was introduced and what was the situation before we had cryptocurrency in the mix here? So I've read recently that there was ransomware in the 90s, but it was never on my radar. I was ignorant of it until recently. And I think that's because it wasn't really a problem. And as a longstanding advocate of cryptocurrencies, I'm still more than happy to point out that it wasn't until we had anonymous payment systems that ransomware became a problem because it's hard to collect a ransom if you don't have an anonymous permissionless payment system because all the existing payment systems that we had in the world were either not anonymous or risky and things like that. So cryptocurrency is definitely the base driver behind the current rise of ransomware because it wasn't like from a threat modeling standpoint, it wasn't really super important or relevant prior to ransoms being able to be collected. That said, I think that's a testament to cryptocurrencies that criminals can use them for such terrible things and they remain resilient in the face of what would be you know, legal state mandated censorship of these sorts of criminal activity payments. That said, ransomware could theoretically exist prior to cryptocurrencies. They're not essential to the functioning of it. They just make it a lot easier. And the threat posed by ransomware is, in a lot of ways, the same threat posed by any other virus or malware that gets on your machine, or even just denial of service. Like if a meteor hits your data center, or ransomware gets in there and encrypts all the files on all of your servers, like the net result to your operation or your business or your organization is basically the same. And so what it's started to do now, while the threat of ransomware is somewhat a new thing, it's the underlying vulnerability of lack of preparedness for a disaster that renders your data inaccessible has been there for a long time. And ransomware is just kind of bringing it to the forefront and showing us that a lot of organizations don't have very good disaster preparedness because ransomware is just one type of many different disasters. It's obviously the one of the moment that's on our mind and probably more frequent than your data center getting hit by a meteor. But the net result is the same to your business, I think. So on the issue of cryptocurrencies and ransomware, funny thing about Bitcoin is it's not really anonymous. Like it's pretty censorship resistant, but it's kind of pseudonymous, but it's not really anonymous. And a funny thing was happening a few years ago that people from the FBI were going on TV and going ranting about how, oh, Bitcoin is horrible. Anyone can just use it for money laundering and we can't trace them and it's so easy to do. And please, please don't throw me into that briar patch. And I think what was going on here was the FBI actually had quite good capabilities for tracking what people are doing on Bitcoin because it's all on the blockchain. You can see all the transactions happening. There's no human names attached to them, but there's quite a bit of information about what's going on here. And they were pretty successful at tricking a lot of pretty technically unsophisticated people into going, oh, all I need to do to launder my money is buy a bunch of Bitcoin and then sell the Bitcoin and then I'm in the clear. And then they just you know, made it really easy for the FBI to combust them after they did this because they just made this super easy to read record of what they'd just done, thinking that they were using some super fancy money laundering technology. So there's this perception of Bitcoin as being very good for money laundering, which is a little different from collecting money for ransomware. But that perception is largely untrue. Now, there are privacy coins in particular, like Zcash. Although, again, it's easy to screw that up. Like most Zcash transactions are unshielded. And you have to know the difference <laughs> that you're not actually getting any privacy benefit at all if you're using Zcash with unshielded transactions. So cryptocurrencies generally, but more specifically, Bitcoin aren't as much better than other approaches to this stuff than people think they are. I think definitely from a privacy standpoint, but the lack of censorship resistance does sort of enable, it gets the money out of the victim and to the attacker. At that point, it's sort of the attacker's problem, how to deal with that on themselves. But it certainly provides a mechanism. And I think it's becoming more common for ransomware to actually demand payment in one of these privacy-related cryptocurrencies as well, for exactly that reason. I think this is sort of one of those things, just like connecting an internet-facing service to the global internet that is going to exist in the world now. And this is not to say we can't do things about it or address it, but this is sort of the new normal, like being able to send payments to unknown parties that are irreversible across the internet is a cat that's out of the bag, even if large governments decide that this is too much of a danger and decide to crack down on 
payments, however they want to do it. This is not going to deter a lot of these types of extortion criminals. And so what we have to do now as defenders is assume that that's always going to be the case and look at what we can do about it. It sort of like goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Bram, with the memory safety issues in C, which led to 40 years of software vulnerabilities until it's just now starting to be fixed on a wide scale. It was available to people that cared. But now it's the same with, you know, passwords. 20 years ago, you know, an eight character lowercase password was probably sufficient. Today, you know, you're cracked in an hour. The rules around passwords for websites drive me insane. It's just the voodoo around the unpronounceable characters and the password links. And it's like, oh my God, like, look, stop complaining to me about how my password does include these characters or doesn't include these characters. There are literally websites with incompatible rules for their passwords where you could not use the same password on both of them just because they have their own completely arbitrary voodoo around what they think is and is not a secure password. And it's like, guys, look, the users should not know their own password. They should have a password manager. They should know their master root password. They should not know their actual passwords on different websites. That should not be a thing. The reason I'm bringing that up is because like now we have, you know, strong cryptographic authentication. Everyone carries around our hardware security module in their pocket. Like we're, It took us 20 years to even begin to move away from passwords. It took us 40 years to get things like Rust to replace things like C, memory-safe languages in general. And I think what we're sort of on the cusp of that in regards to, as you mentioned, sandboxing and just general untrusted code on your machine, like the web paved the way there. Mobile was a clean slate and helped a lot. Most mobile devices are mostly free of most types of malware. And we're going to have to revisit that for desktops and probably rethink the whole model because the way that desktop computing has worked for the last 40 years is not going to work for the next 40 years. Definitely hardware security modules are better still. You need to have some kind of processes in place for, you know, what happens finally if you lose your hardware security module, there needs to be something that you do about that. But almost everyone has a hardware security module in the form of their phone, and it's easy enough to get like a YubiKey on top of that. And what I'm saying about how users shouldn't know their own passwords, in some sense, that's a hack. It's just like pretend like you're not actually using passwords at all and use these other things, which are there today. The thing that's completely insane is within all this, we're still using credit card numbers, which is like, what is going on here? How, how is this a thing? <laughs> and yet there we are. <laughs> Looking for the best way to unlock your crypto's liquidity? Nexo.io is exactly what you need. Borrow against your digital assets at just 6.9% APR. Earn passive income with yields of up to 12%. And swap between more than 100 market pairs with the instant Nexo exchange. Try the Nexo wallet app to get the whole 360 degrees of crypto banking. Get started at Nexo.io. That's N-E-X-O.io to get started today. Secure, regulated, and reliable, Bitstamp is the cryptocurrency exchange of choice for more than 4 million investors and traders worldwide. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a trailblazer in security, head of the class in personal customer service, and dedicated to making buying crypto fast and easy. Whether you are investing on our desktop platform and mobile app or trading on our speedy APIs, Bitstamp gives you all the tools you need to reach your crypto goals. Visit bitstamp.net to learn more. Bitstamp. For all the ways we crypto. Hello, my name is Justin. I'm a compliance analyst and I deal with a lot of ransomware payments. So I wanted to go back to the whole private payment aspect that you said has been one of the main enablers of ransomware. So for the Colonial Pipeline case, Darkside reportedly was offering discounts of 10 or 20% for payments in Monero. Do you think that trend will continue? Yes, <laughs> I think it will. I'm curious, just out of intellectual curiosity, what happens to funds that are collected, which are done using Bitcoin? Like, what do they do with the money on the other side? Because now you have this laundering problem. And I'm wondering, are there other specialists on the other side? Are there entities, like, do ransomware groups have deals with other groups where they'll, like, trade them, like, dirty Bitcoin for like actual cash <laughs> that someone delivers by hand? Is that another business going to the other side of these things? There are a number of different exchange services that will exchange one cryptocurrency for another without demanding any sort of real background or documentation. 
And then additionally, there are actually on-chain privacy solutions for Bitcoin that allow people to both obtain transaction privacy for themselves for legitimate reasons, as well as enable money laundering and the concealment of the source of funds. So I don't necessarily think that the lack of privacy on Bitcoin is going to deter anyone because there are mitigating strategies. There. Yeah. Actually, on a technical level, that's all that Monero is really doing. It's doing things that you can in principle do on Bitcoin, but Monero just kind of tries to force everyone to do them all the time as part of normal behavior. Monero just doesn't get you the same kind of privacy guarantees as like Zcash shielded transactions do, at least not today. My name is Z Rizvi, you know, the background in IT and uh, cloud strategy and so on. I'm curious, what do you guys think about what are the persistent ways that we can avoid all of this? Like, you know, I've heard a couple of things like sandboxing and, you know, the avenue for, you know, non-reversible transactions. Are there any, you know, ways that we have discussed besides those which would be effective against ransomware? Um, the low-hanging fruit by far is just getting rid of the ridiculous breaches that are so easy to do. So, like simjacking, right? This is just insane. Right now, like a lot of telecom providers just make it trivial to simjack their users. So you as a you know person who has a phone can, first off, don't give your phone number <laughs> to any services that you're using. Unfortunately, in the United States... He says on Clubhouse... Yeah, there are services like Clubhouse that do just require your phone number to do anything. But then on top of that, in the United States, at least, banks are required to get your phone number and actually use it as a security verification thing, which is just insane. Like, you should not assume that people's phone numbers are secure. That's just not a reasonable assumption, given the way the phone system works. So obviously, this should be improved a lot, like the telecom providers could improve it a lot. But there's a number of things like this in terms of just like the amount of remote exploits that software has. So that's the most low-hanging fruit. So that's a lot better off than it used to be. But then you get into these like phishing attacks that people have and other things. But you as a user, it's kind of like, don't let the world know your email address. Don't let the world know your phone number. <laughs> just <laughs> try to be unreachable and unfindable as much as you possibly can. Yeah, and that, you know, in the world of social media, that's close to impossible. I run a business and it's not possible for me to be unreachable. So I think that there's got to be a middle ground there for people in business that do need to you know, my email address is public. I use different email address for different things. Like, for example, I can totally and heartily countersign that don't give services your phone number. Like, I bought a SIM card to sign up for Clubhouse to be on this call. I'm going to cut up the SIM card in an hour. And so, like, protecting your personal information is important there. But to Z, to your question about, you know, what can we do? The biggest one and, like, the wide industry change for this is going to require, you know, as Bram spoke about, much better sandboxing across the board, but that's going to take time. And like we have research OSs out right now that are still have a lot of rough edges that can do this kind of stuff. But for normal people doing normal things, the advice that I give, and this is sad that this is the correct advice, but the advice that I give is don't run software on your computer. Opt for web-based stuff. Don't download programs. Don't click on them. And unless you're a security engineer and you know you can verify that what it does and how it does it, it's not really safe to do that. Stick to the software you have on your computer. Stick to web-based stuff because the web is strongly sandboxed. And it's a little bit different on mobile, but, you know, for example, in organizations that don't have extreme privacy security requirements, you know, I issue like Chrome OS devices, which if the Google and the US government isn't in your threat and surveillance model, then that works well because they can't run software that isn't vetted and signed by a security team. iOS devices, kind of the same thing, like Apple can surveil you and censor you on iOS, to censor the apps you can run on iOS devices, but they also censor the malware for the most part, and it's also strongly sandboxed. And so sort of a double-edged sword there. I think the industry will get to a better place over the next 10 years. Ransomware is definitely going to drive some of that. And it can't be ignored now, especially with like the pipeline hack, right? But there aren't good solutions for it right now on general purpose computers where you're like, you know, downloading files and double clicking on them. It's a danger. Yeah, a totally reasonable thing for an organization that's concerned about their security is all your employees have their work devices, make it so they do all their work from their work devices, and make it so all their work devices are mobile OSs and on devices that auto-update reasonably frequently, either ones issued directly by Apple or are directly associated with Google. 
And if you do that, you know, you're stuck with the functionality those things provide. But and surveillance. And their potential surveillance, although that's generally not. If that's in your threat model, you're probably screwed anyway. <laughs> I mean, Chrome OS devices, there's no way to configure Chrome OS devices in a way where Google does not see the majority of your web traffic. There's no way to configure Chrome OS device to use it without a Google account. There's no way to manage Chrome OS devices without a Google subscription. Now, these are acceptable trade-offs for a lot of organizations. I run one of my companies this way. I run another one not. And so these are good solutions for now, but you have to understand the threat model. For example, like on iOS devices, which is one solution there, you can do a backup of your device, but if the app you're using has been pulled from the app store and you do a restore, you're not going to get that same app back. You can't actually do a backup and restore. So there are different threats, probably better threats for most use cases than ransomware or malware getting onto your device. It's, there's no great answer at the moment. Well, organizations also often have other threats that they're concerned about, like their users having like violating document retention policies, right? Because files just get saved locally to the local file system all the time. And that's not audited very well. And they're afraid of, you know, getting some kind of legal thing coming in and forcing their users' desktops to get seized and then gone through and then finding documents that were supposed to have been deleted. That's very much part of a lot of people's threat models. And it's totally reasonable, actually, to make it so that like all your corporate documents are in these systems where they're not hitting people's desktops and just randomly getting saved to the local file system. My name's Seth. Bram, you were talking a little bit about you know, how banks require phone numbers as ID verification. And it made me think a little bit about like decentralized ID. Just curious about some of your thoughts around maybe that technology using those types of things. Would those be better suited for this kind of use case? How you have your credentials fundamentally and how you fix them when they get broken are like kind of deep problems. What I can tell you is that the way phone numbers are handled is very, very inappropriate for those. Like a lot of people have their phone number on a service where a sufficiently skilled social engineer can basically just call up their provider and bullshit their way into simjacking this person with no skills and qualifications greater than just being a good bullshitter. And that's obviously completely unacceptable from a security standpoint. When you start getting into, well, what is an identity really? You get into these trade-offs of like auditability versus privacy in what's going on with people. But in the current state of affairs, we're nowhere near having to particularly worry about painful trade-offs there because the current solutions are so horrible that <laughs> almost anything is better than them. I think that's another case where, you know, we have strong identity technologies that are actually starting to become standardized and become more widely deployed like U2F, WebAuthn, things like this, but they're not widely adopted by services. Just like, you know, the memory safety issue that we were talking about or sandboxing, like there are platforms that sandbox well, most of the major ones don't. There are Services that do authentication well, most like telecoms and banks generally don't. I don't know of a commercial bank in the U.S. that allows you to use a U2F token, and that's insane to me. It will get better over time because the technology is there. It's just the adoption that's lagging. And it, like literally most people have better security on the video games they log into than their bank. It's completely That's insane. absolutely correct, yeah. The thing that I wonder about, it's like, you know, no one's the villain in the story of their own life. I kind of wonder what people who write ransomware think of themselves. And I've heard widely varying stories of the kind of customer service that ransomware, I don't know what to call them, ransomware vendors <laughs> provide to users. There's stories of like, well, don't give them money because you give them money and they don't actually unlock stuff or they only partially unlock stuff and they view this as license to keep going after you for more. And then I've heard alternative stories of some of these places provide absolutely phenomenal customer service that you pay them the money, they unlock everything, they automatically patch your system, they give you guides and tutorials about how to avoid getting hacked in the future. And I wonder, like, what are these people thinking? Like, how many of them view themselves as only slightly gray hat hackers who are proactively fixing everyone's security on their machines against worse actors than them? And they're just, you know, doing just a little bit of ransomware just to have a business model so that they can go about doing these good deeds, at least in terms of the story they tell themselves. 
We don't have to guess. The people that did the pipeline made a statement saying, like, hey, we're just here to make money. We don't want to do hostels. We don't want to do this. We don't want to do that. I don't think it matters in terms of threat modeling, and I certainly don't think it matters in terms of morality or ethics. I think it's still a terrible thing, regardless of how these people justify their criminal actions themselves, because you know data is one of the most important things in our world, and there's probably a lot of mental gymnastics involved, to your point. Yeah, well, if you go over the kinds of attacks that happen, most humans are very moral beings, like at the core foundation of who we are. And in the security industry, most of the top security professionals could make vastly more money as criminals. And probably most of them would be complete terrors, like vastly more skilled than any of the criminals out there today actually are. But they don't do it because they want to be on the side of the good and the true. I remember having a conversation with, I'll name drop here to pour some out for my very good friend who's now dead, Dan Kaminsky. We were at uh, one of the gas communications camps and we were talking about how wealthy we would be if we were willing to be criminals. And <laughs> it, was, it was an interesting thought experiment. And they were like, oh, alas, we are on the side of the good guys. Yeah, no, I definitely had this experience with BitTorrent that there were definitely people who were outright scammer criminals who were just like pretending to be me, basically, who made more money than I ever did off of BitTorrent just because they were willing to just scam people. Thank you, Bram and Snake, for wonderful conversation around ransomware. And Bram, on the customer service, I think it's no, no different than having a bug bounty program and people getting paid for that. Like, you know, it's, it's kind of similar. They are patching everything. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's very different. A bug bounty is consensual. Yeah, a bug Agreed. bounty, no end user is getting hurt by what, what's going Agreed. on here. No, you're, you're right. I was just saying if you're patching my systems and everything, I think, I think it's worth the consideration that are paying them. But regardless of that, you know, you're right. There are certain problems in the industry, which is, A, some things are solvable, patchable, and still doesn't happen. If you go through, you know, to Shodan and other places, you'll find systems with three, four, five years old, you know, systems not patched. And that has been the norm, you know, unfortunately in the industry as well. So that is causing the first problem. But again, you know, my question to you was about SIM jacking versus the SIM cloning. I mean, those are two distinct different problems. And I think you already answered those questions. I think that mostly you're talking about the social engineering, your way through it and finding, you know, basically with the, with the personal information. The question though is, in this today's day and age, with all the social media, anything you want to do, you have to put your number in there. What is a normal common person has to do? Because, you know, you and me can do something. If I were to go and explain it to my dad, I have to go and explain it to my friends who are not in security, they will literally call me tinfoil head and just, you know, laugh me off. So what can be done? So I don't use those services. I'm happy to say that, you know, when a service is like, you have to give a phone number to proceed, I say, sorry, I don't give my phone number out. If I have to use a service temporarily like this one, you know, I get a temporary phone number. You can get a phone number in the United States for about 10 bucks for a month, throw it in a phone, do what you got to do, and then cut up the SIM and delete your account. The only way we're going to get rid of these sorts of demands is by saying, no, I'm not going to be part of your user acquisition, user growth. I'm not going to compromise my own safety and privacy and security by giving you this thing. Your phone number is almost like your social security number these days in that, you know, it's a very low cost single API call to a data broker to get based on your phone number, a whole lot of information about you. It's basically, it follows you around the companies. Even if you call up a local restaurant and give them your phone number on the phone, and place an order. A lot of those restaurants are selling that order data, your delivery address correlated with that phone number to Google, to delivery services, because they enter that into the databases. All of these services are then you know, going on to sell that data and correlate that data. So just don't do it. Don't use services that do that. Find ones that will allow you to use them without them with your email address. Yeah, I don't think that's super realistic for most people, unfortunately. I think in terms of likely solutions, more having something where people have like kind of like many people do with email where you have like multiple phone numbers and you have some number of throwaway phone numbers. So you have like your phone number that like your actual trusted contacts use to call you and interact with you. And then you have like your other phone number that you use to sign up for sketchy services that you don't trust very much. That is a thing that one can do today. And hopefully it'll become easier to do things like that in the future. Once you pay the Dane Geld, you'll never get rid of the Dane. I think that until companies start realizing that demanding sort of expensive credentials, like a phone number, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons they do it is because it cuts down on spam. 
email addresses are free. Phone numbers cost a few bucks. Is going to actually turn away users. It's going to hinder their adoption. This needs to be a societal change because phone numbers, just like, you know, as you mentioned, credit card numbers, terrible security around them. They're reused credentials. They're a window into a ton of behavior and activity data that is sold and resold and packaged. And just like passwords, you know, we need to get away from this as an industry. And so if you're building a service, don't use telephone numbers. If you're a user of a service, don't give people your phone number or, you know, as Bram said, get a few different ones if you have to use it. But that's not very practical either. I really hope this state of affairs just goes away and we as a society have to focus on changing it. Yeah, but then like a lot of users do appreciate that if they like get a new phone or something, they want to be able to regain access to their social media accounts. And the only thing they're going to have carried forward is their phone number. So to them, in many cases, it's actually a service that there is this tie-in to the phone number that the service is willing to use to get back their credentials. Now, via SMS. Yeah, this has a lot of other problems. (laughs) Yeah, I have to disagree with that. There are solutions to this problem that involve you know, multiple different verification steps, identity verification, things like that. Hardware tokens, telephones, multiple devices. I really just hope that services texting authentication information via SMS to phone numbers is something that we leave in the past very soon. Yeah, unfortunately, those better solutions just aren't widely deployed today. They're just not an option for many things that we can use today. Or That's rely true. On today. I think a lot of people still are, you know, sort of one phone, but I think increasingly with like watches, and phones and tablets and sometimes laptops, like people have more than one authentication credential. So like they say, for example, get a new phone, maybe do an email verification, do a notification to a watch or to a tablet or something like that to authenticate. Google is moving in this direction. You know, they're using the hardware security enclaves in mobile devices to store an authentication token because increasingly people are having more than one device. So when you replace a device, you can you know, authenticate from a different one. Well, there's also just a software development thing. If someone's making a new service, like Clubhouse here is a good example, that if someone's making a new service, they just need something, anything that they can get up and running and move as quickly as possible because they don't have the resources to deal with making a super amazing user authentication system because they're focused on making their service work. And they'll add in user authentication stuff later. And also just being vaguely respectful of users' privacy is also something they cut corners on Clubhouse. There haven't been many articles about this, but Clubhouse has been completely egregious about aggressively digging into contacts and past texting behavior that's really none of their business and leaking a lot of information about that in suggestions of who you might connect with on Clubhouse and send invites to on Clubhouse in the interests of having rapid viral growth, which I totally understand why they're doing that. And this is the common pattern that when services are new, they're egregious and abusive. And then as they get more mature, they get more respectful because there's more of a light on them and they've hit the other side of their S-curve and it's not as useful to them. Uh, that ties back to that thing you were talking about before about user consent request dialogues because like on all mobile on all platforms these days, contacts permissions opt in and Clubhouse asks like, hey, can I have every phone number address and email address of everyone in your phone that you've ever talked to, phoned or, or emailed with? And the user is like, yeah, sure, please just take all my data. <laughs> Nick, I have one last question for you. When you go all this extra length to protect your privacy, now you see all these financial institutions and data brokers and everybody else is just selling our data, right? You might have mortgage and you have, you know, your credit score and all that, and those, that data is going out. Do you think whatever you are doing right now is just being nullified by just what is happening around that? No, I think there's a lot of different types of data about you. There's data about, you know, the loans that you have and your financial history. There's data about the money in your bank account. And then there's data about the things that you purchase. There's data about the places you travel. There's data about the foods that you eat and the web pages you go to. And those have different levels of sensitivity to security. Like privacy is obviously not an absolute thing. Like there are certain things that by law you cannot preserve the privacy of and operate a business in the United States, for example. Like, for example, in the regulated financial industry in the United States, there's basically no financial privacy available. Like if you have a bank account or a loan, they have laws around collecting information and it's illegal to provide false or fictitious information. So you have to give them certain amounts of information. That said, I am not super concerned about the privacy of how much money is in my bank account or what loans I have. What I am more concerned about is things that are like on a more personal level, the books that I read 
the foods that I eat, the places I go, the things that I purchase. And there are a lot of techniques that are not that onerous to preserve your privacy in that realm. Obviously, nothing is airtight, nothing is perfect, but there are a number of different ways that you can go about sort of isolating, putting a sort of firewall in between the more trivial stuff that is collected by many, many different organizations as a routine matter of business. Like, for example, you know, like the Airbnbs you stay in is a good example. And there's a number of books that are out on the topic for obtaining privacy in along these lines. Um, one of the ones that I like, even though it's a little bit extreme, it's right in the title, it's called Extreme Privacy. I believe the author's name is Michael Pizzelli. And to implement everything in that book would drive you mad, but to implement half of it will still cut down on the data collection about you and your life and your lifestyle and pattern of life without being super onerous. The one that drives me batty on that one is how banks don't seem to have a firm concept on here is my physical address, here is my mailing address, <laughs> right? Like I know you're by law required to know my physical address, which is insane, but whatever. But like just send all of my correspondence to this other address that I view as physically more secure and less likely to change, so less likely to get any real interruptions to it moving forward. And banks barely understand this concept at all. It's really insane. Like it's it. worth mentioning that you're allowed to have more than one physical address. Little privacy tip, you're allowed to have more than one place that you live. Yes, they're not good at being clear on what's the primary one and other stuff like that. This is something where like an act of Congress could force banks to be much more coherent about these things and do a much better job of it. And it wouldn't even be that hard. They just don't care that much. Hi, greetings. This is Jacob from Munich, computer scientist. And I was still asking myself, how do you protect yourself from ransomware attacks in practice? And what are best practices beyond not clicking on emailed links? So the whole not clicking on links and email thing is a little bit overblown. If you're using a modern browser, the likelihood of clicking on a link in an email harming your computer is pretty low. But the biggest one that I can really go for is have a plan for if all the computers in your organization are destroyed or rendered inoperable. That's sort of the overarching policy one is ransomware attacks like, can happen to anyone. It's not a total failure of your IT organization or IT management to have been subjected to ransomware. It is a total failure if you have no better option than to pay the ransom because ransomware is something that should be on your radar and should be planned for. There are mitigation strategies to avoid it. Don't run on trusted software. Don't download programs. There's even extreme ones like binary whitelisting or going to like full iOS, Chrome OS kind of things. But in the sort of macro view, make sure that if any or all of your staff took all their devices and threw them in the river tomorrow at noon, that your business would be running by 5 p.m. again. Like that's something you need to do anyway, because there are a million different ways that your business can be interrupted. And having a disaster recovery plan and strategy and actually practicing it and drilling on it and making sure that you can do these things is really important. Really simple ones, like make sure you know, if you issue security tokens, make sure everybody has two. If you issue telephones, make sure everybody has two. This is for, you know, high availability, sort of high security, critical infrastructure stuff. It's not unreasonable to have data backups. It's not unreasonable to have machine and OS, you know, N plus one environments where you can switch over to a different computer, a different network or a different application if the ones that you're normally using get compromised. That's just best practices. Yeah, I'd say the biggest thing is, you know, have backups, but backups doesn't just mean literal backups, just basic practices of you should not be dependent on files that are just sitting on people's desktops. That should not be a thing within your organization. It should not be a thing for you personally. You should have cloud backups. It introduces other threats, but it's a really good idea in general to have almost all your stuff be in the cloud with real recovery plans for it and the ability to get back like old versions of all this stuff in case someone tries to, you know, wipe out all the new versions and get the non-existence backed up, right? Those are things that you should just be doing in general and doesn't really cost all that much. And in fact, is probably just going to make an organization run a lot better if you have real controls over what document flows are and how everything is stored in your system. So another thing I was wondering, shouldn't it be noticeable by a system monitor that there's a CPU intensive encryption running in the background during ransomware compromise? Encryption is no longer CPU intensive as of about 10 years ago, because now we have native instructions for that. 
Uh, that's right. Thank yeah, you well, very much. Yeah, well, you also probably should be making your hard drives get encrypted anyway, just as a general thing. And of course, if you're doing that, that makes it relatively easy for an attacker to encrypt the encryption key. So <laughs> there you go. Okay, so pulling it back to kind of how I set this up, talking about the Colonial Pipeline, one of the things that's always struck me as odd about these big infrastructure plays, especially in a situation like the pipeline, where literally they have a physical pipeline that runs the length of their operation, right? They didn't lay fiber along that line. They could have had their own completely private network that would have been immune to these types of things, but they didn't do it. I feel like there's a bigger issue here than just the ransomware side of this. And maybe it's how we think about networks or how we think about sort of these utilities in general. A bit of trivia. SPRINT is actually an acronym, the Telco SPRINT. That's an acronym. It stands for Southern Pacific Railway Internal Telephone, that they had right of way for the railway. And because they had right of way for the railway, they could lay down a telephone line. So they did. And then in the end, the telephone line was worth more than the railway was. <laughs> um, so there are many reasons why it's a good idea. If you're digging a giant hole in the ground over a very long distance, you probably should lay some fiber while you're doing it. <laughs> Just on principle. I think the world is very interconnected and that's not going to stop. There are definitely attacks that happen which are pulled off by nation states that don't even have like a ransomware motivation. They're just trying to mess stuff up. And that's happening in increasing amounts now where actual nation states just on principle launch massive attacks on all levels, including just like social media trolling is something that they're doing very intentionally, adding toxicity to the general environment. And that's not going to go away. And it's something we just have to live with. And organizations completely cutting themselves away from everything else isn't a viable solution today. And even doing parts of that are becoming less viable over time. So I think to address the like private network thing in particular, as Brian mentioned, like you can't run an organization completely disconnected from the internet and be effective. The pipeline, from what I've read about it, is that they shut down the actual pipeline operations itself, which was on a disconnected network, because of sort of command and control issues in their separate like corporate network, which you know is going to have to be connected to the internet, even if you have your own separate private network, because you need to send and receive email with your customers, for example. You need to be able to go on the web and do stuff and run your business and make phone calls and all of the other things that we use the internet for. And so a private network, you know, whether or not you have your own fiber, you, I mean, you can establish a private network. We have software and hardware that can, and cryptography that can do that across the internet today. That's not going to solve this problem. The problem here is sort of twofold is one is lack of a good disaster recovery plan and two the ability for i'm going to go out on a limb and speculate here people who are not trained in data security like specifically to run programs on computers in the organization which is a pretty common default thing that people do today and it's dangerous if any random person in your organization outside of your IT department or you know security engineers can download a program and double click it and run it on their computer and potentially taking over the computer, you're going to have this problem. And it's not their fault. You can't train everyone to be a data security engineer. It's just not going to happen. And so we need systemic industry-wide solutions to this on a software engineering level. We need new OSs, new desktop environments, new security sandboxing, all sorts of different things. But in the short term, if you're operating a business, you need to have a plan B in the event that your computers or your network are rendered inoperable for whatever reason. Hey, Sneak. It's Rose. Sneak dragged me into this. It's not as much a question as it is more of a point. There's a cost versus benefit analysis occurring here. I feel like when it came to making the grid digital, for example, or making the control systems for a dam, like digital and then putting them online. And I feel like does at some point do these asymmetric attacks where it's really cheap to attack and really expensive to defend, Start pushing tech back into the analog realm. You don't want your critical national infrastructure to be online. Well, there's one place where that's absolutely the case, which is in elections. And one thing I feel, although I say I'm not a security person, in the interest of the honor of the security profession, I have to say there was no widespread fraud in the last U.S. elections. It didn't happen. This has actually been a great success of the security 
industry that we, and maybe I shouldn't include myself in this, but the security industry made clear (laughs) to people who are doing it that you absolutely need a physical paper trail of election. That like trying to do digital vote tallies, like all digital online voting is the threat model of the CIA with the budget of the post office. You just should not do it. And because of that, we're not relying on it. I mean, it's first pass for a quick thing, but then things are spot checked. And if necessary, you can go back and check everything later. So that's a very clear example where, yes, you should stay analog. (laughs) It's better to stay analog. For other things, unfortunately, the benefits of having digital controls are so massive that it becomes very hard and in some places completely unrealistic to make these things not be net connected. Also, I think that the assumption that like the control systems for these things is just on the internet is an incorrect one. A lot of these things are on air gap networks. A lot of these things are on specific non-general purpose computer controllers. Like for example, the pipeline thing, the pipeline was fine. They shut down the pipeline because their billing systems on their you know normal computers, which didn't have direct control of the pipeline, couldn't work. And so obviously, if you're not going to get paid for the work you're doing, you're not going to do the work. But like this was not an attack on the pipeline. This was an attack on the organization that runs the pipeline, which is an important distinction. To touch on your point real quick, Bram, about election security, like we are not using paper trails in election. We are using default machines. We are using online electronic vote tallying in a lot of cases. And I think despite like the benefits to democracy to say like, oh, the election's fine, you know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And I think that the security of voting right now is an undefined answer because for exactly the reason that was raised, because we don't have these audit trails, because we literally do not have the information about what is happening in these machines that we know to be extremely vulnerable and it needs to be fixed. I personally don't really care about the democratic process that much, but if you do care about the democratic process, then you should care about the security of voting. And I can tell you firsthand that the security of voting systems is not good. It's well documented by people who care very deeply about this, who are very, very good high-end security people, that we have some major infrastructure problems there that need to be fixed. And Rose, to your point about asymmetry of attacks, I don't think that the asymmetry is inherent to the system. I have long maintained that it's a lot easier to defend than it is to attack. And the reason that attacking is so easy in a lot of organizations is literally because of incompetence. It's not because we don't have the technology. It's not because the technology is expensive. It's because this is the way we've always done it, and it worked perfectly for years until yesterday. There's a lot of sort of traditional approaches to doing IT in large organizations, the biggest one just being basically unsecurity managed windows, like the bare minimum, where it's hooked up to a domain controller for single sign-on, and then it's just like, well, have at it, you're on your own. So that needs to change. And whether that changes from the Microsoft side or whether that changes from the organization side, like that will change because the market is now forcing it to change. Because if you don't change, then your business is going to be shut down. I'd like to quickly like refer to the Department of Energy report. They did this in 2016. It was a vulnerability analysis of the U.S. electric sector. Some of the fields I've worked in, their temptation is this. They have physical assets that are located across broad geographical areas. They typically require a person to go physically over there or they require someone to be to crew that with that asset at all times. So there's this temptation, if you will, to to put some aspects of monitoring, et cetera, online and to then let stuff sort it out. And this is particularly apparent in the grid. And I feel like there's a strong countercurrent to good security practices, which exists because of this specific business case. What do you guys think? I think that doing secure remote networking is a solved problem. We have solutions for using the internet to connect remote islands of networks in secure and, dare I say, hack-proof ways if they're deployed correctly and used correctly. They're not hard. They're widely available. Most organizations simply aren't doing this. And there are insecure ways that are easier and cheaper, only slightly easier and slightly cheaper. And so I think that these circumstances are going to force people's hands into improving their security posture just out of necessity. The vast, vast majority of attacks are not some kind of mission impossible, super involved operation. There's some just egregious 
violation of basic security protocols that someone just walks right through is the vast majority of such things. And an organizational structure that means when you have one egregious violation, the whole house of cards falls down instead of having, you know, a defense in depth strategy where you need to have multiple people screwing up simultaneously to have a major breach. This is Mondo. I didn't too much had a question. I just had an agreement with you guys with the phone number situation because I had a thought like, what if you're a bum on the street, right? You don't have a phone. So that means you don't have access to these apps. So I agree with what he said about, you know, let's start building stuff and not using these apps when they're asking for these numbers and stuff. So, Yeah, these organizations, they want user growth over everything else. And it's become normalized to just be like, well, give us your real name as if any organization other than you is an authority on what your name is. Hi, Paul, I'm using a fake name on your service, so make sure you ban me later today. Exactly. The, uh, you know, your phone number, your address, and all this kind of stuff, all these apps ask for location service. Like The only way that we're going to change behavior in the industry is to start being like, no, I'm not going to be part of your growth curve if you're going to demand this stuff from me because it's unfair. Real names is an interesting one. It's pretty reasonable for things to have a names policy, which is like, well, it doesn't have to be like your official legal real name, but it should be a name that you kind of stand behind, that someone out there has some idea who you are based on. And also, you can't have multiple accounts. You can't just delete one account and make another. Those are pretty reasonable policies. I don't agree at all. I think that the idea that I am one person at all times and that any external party other than me is an authority on what my name is, I completely reject that. I think that having multiple accounts, being able to be one person on Monday and be able to show up under a new identity with a new name on Wednesday and express different ideas that are maybe contrary to that of my social group or would get me ostracized or killed by expressing them under the name that I'm known in my society is a fundamentally important thing to a free society. You know, I definitely sympathize with everything you want there. And I actually want a lot of those things as well. Unfortunately, there are these practical trade-offs where there are apples out there who abuse such things, which cause a lot of problems. Yeah, I think one of the biggest groups of apples out there that abuse such things are people who, because of their orientation or political beliefs, are under their real name rounded up and killed. Yeah, I think sometimes you have these like difficult trade-offs, right? That there are apps like Clubhouse that probably do on some level want to be respectful of users' privacy, but also have a business to run and need growth in order to have that problem in the first place. There's definitely, you know, organizations that just want to run and be functional, but then can accidentally open themselves up to security problems just while being excessively expedient about certain things. And the really difficult thing is how do you as much as is possible, figure out how to enable both of these things and make all of the things that are important happen while sacrificing the minimum that you need to on the other side of things. Absolutely. There are business considerations, to be sure, but we need to make sure that the business considerations never trample on the human ones and safety. I think I thought of about three more episodes we got to do out of this one, but for the time being, <laughs> that's it for this episode of Hard Problems with Graham Cohen. This episode will be out in podcast form this Sunday on Coindesk.com, and you can find it today on your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to sit in on future live recordings, go ahead and click the greenhouse button up at the top and follow Coindesk, and then give a follow to Graham and to myself as well, Adam B. Levine. Typically, we would suggest you follow our guest as well, but his account is due to self-destruct in about an hour. So instead, <laughs> check him out on his website, sneak.berlin. And until next time, thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you.